All right, so Father, we come together in Jesus' name and through his blood, and we're all in agreement. The Bible says if two agree on earth is touching anything, that you'll do it. Lord, we just thank you tonight for an open heaven and your glory here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for anointing and empowering this time. I thank you, Father, by this Spirit of God, that you would speak through me everything that needs to be spoken under the anointing. And even now, your precious Holy Spirit moving upon the people, everyone hearing this, to give us good soil, to help us to be good soil good soil of hearts and minds, by the Holy Spirit, having eyes and ears of the Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for what you're speaking through me tonight as living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And Lord, I thank you that the winds of your Spirit carry this out among the nations. It will get where it needs to accomplish what it's supposed to. And we thank you everything accomplished in and through this time that your will to be done. We believe it. We expect it. And we know the birds of the air try to steal the seed, so we all agree. In Jesus' name, we bind anything of the devil right now that would try to hinder this from getting where it's supposed to or accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish. We bind you in Jesus' name. Back off right now, out in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for your mighty angels just clearing away any resistance and, and the Holy Spirit moving mightily. And we stand on the promise your word will not return void, but go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So we expect it tonight. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going through historic revivals, and uh, this is one of my favorite subjects, and I'm dealing with this from a context of how, what we can learn from it today in our lives, okay? So tonight, I'm going to be dealing, we, we talked about like a desperate cry, a deep groan and travail, and then we moved into the, the last sermon we did, dealt with some, some different topics about revival, what is revival, and revival has a lot to do with, uh, like, spiritually speaking, like a raising from the dead, like a resurrection. So tonight I want you to think about how Jesus went to the home of Lazarus. Lazarus had died, been dead for like three days, and was in the tomb. And, and Jesus went there, and the Bible says that Jesus groaned. Remember that? The Bible says Jesus groaned. And then there was what? A resurrection from the dead, see? So there is something about the groaning. There's something about resurrection life that has to do with revival and so just keep that in mind with the context of this time frame now as we look at revival um, we would obviously be remiss if we didn't deal with the reformation but the reformation was not really a great outpouring of the holy spirit per se the reformation was more along the lines of god uh, beginning a restoration process okay and so we'll look at that tonight but I want to say this up front and then just dive into this. Number one, that this is in no way a negative thing against Catholic people because um, we, you know, we've all known people that, that are Catholic and love them very much, and they're really sweet people. And I do believe that there are some that are Catholic that have found Jesus as their Savior, um, but I, I don't believe it was because of the Catholic Church. I think it was in spite of the Catholic Church. But we do love Catholic people. It's not anything about people, individual people at all. We love them very much. But tonight I will be dealing with um, Roman Catholicism as an institution, okay, and talking about some problems that are there historically and some problems that exist today and how God dealt with it historically as well. So let me just say up front that God did not try to fix Roman Catholicism. Have you ever thought about that? 
when the Reformation came, God was not trying to fix Roman Catholicism. God broke off, he, he broke the ungodly control that that had, and he broke away from it and used certain leaders, which we'll look at tonight, to begin what is known as the Reformation. And what that was, in essence, was it, it was so simple. What the Reformation really was, was a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That plain and simple, that Roman Catholicism had so uh, polluted everything, so bad to such an extent, it led into the Dark Ages, and it was a major stronghold. And God broke away from that, broke its control, and restored back the gospel, okay? And anybody that has studied history, uh, church history, revival history, can tell you that, and I even saw this on the Secular History Channel one time, Roman Catholicism, you can look at, okay, let me go back here from a biblical perspective. When Daniel had the visit from Gabriel and Daniel received revelation, he saw the time he was living under Babylon, that it would move to what the Medes and Persians, and it would be Greece, and then be Rome. In essence, even to this day, right now, we're still kind of living in this time of extended Rome. Did you ever think about that? And so, Roman Catholicism is basically secular Rome began to fall. Multiple reasons. Anybody that's a historian knows there was a lot of inner corruption. There was a lot of inner fighting between uh, political powers. They also, believe it or not, one of the greatest problems came in with what we know as like welfare type of mentalities. They were going out plundering other nations, coming in, people quit working. And started receiving all that was coming in. So Rome began to fall, and these... Um, uh, guerrilla warfare, Attila the Hun, others began to come in and plunder and strike at them. And so they fell as a political power, but everybody knows that that pretty much began to come together in what emerged as Roman Catholicism. So their power was broken in a secular sense, but it consolidated itself in a spiritual power that came, emerged back up, kind of like a phoenix out of the ashes, and Roman Catholicism became the world power shortly after that, to where even kings trembled at the power of the Roman Catholic Church because if the Pope and the Roman clergy would, were, were to declare even a secular king as a heretic, the people would turn on him and they could kill him. Does everybody see what I'm saying? They, they ruled by, by religious power, and they, they had everybody just trembling in fear at the power and the control of the Roman Catholic Church. So um, it became a world power, but let's go back just a little bit before all of that. So from Nero, Nero was the, the guy that historically, I think, had like his elevator didn't go all the way to the top, okay? Nero was not all there. He was just, and he burned down part of Rome, and of course, he had to blame it on somebody, so he blamed it on the Christians. Nero was the guy that, that had the Apostle Paul killed, but it began a great persecution of Christians under Nero. 
From Nero, there were 10 emperors to Diocletian that violently persecuted the church for about 300 years, okay? During that time, we've, we all know this, uh, Christians were captured, they were dipped in oil, hung up on poles, set on fire to light the streets of Rome. They were captured and brought into the Colosseums. Uh, lions and such would be released in there, and people would just spectate as, as, they, as the Christians were martyred. So there was a real violent persecution, and Satan was trying to absolutely destroy and snuff out any trace of Christianity through that. But he never could do it because persecution only purifies the church and makes it stronger. And every time they would kill one, it seemed like two more sprung up. And we kind of saw that uh, back in the 90s in China. The more... China would persecute. It seemed like the greater the revival, underground church revival in China would spread. So we know that persecution only makes the church stronger. And so Satan had to change his tactic. And the devil really thought this one through, let me tell you. And so the devil began to strategize and came up with an idea that if he can't attack and destroy it like that, he would have to find a way to pollute it from the inside. And so an emperor, after Diocletian, an emperor came to power named Constantine. He saw some supposed vision in the sky of like a cross. And so he put these crosses on their shield. He ended up winning. And he basically began to sanction Christianity in Rome, which at first the Christians were relieved. You know, it seemed like a good thing. It seemed like, thank God, we're no longer going to have to be in hiding and be in the catacombs and all that. It seemed good at first. But Constantine, there was nothing about him that would indicate that he had any type of a new birth and that he in any way really radically changed or anything like that. This was just simply that there were all these pagan temples and pagan gods throughout all of Rome, and now there was just going to be another temple to the God of the Christians, mixed in with all the others. Constantine became, in essence, if I could say it this way, kind of like the first pope, if you will, of the Roman Catholic movement. This was, this was a new thing with, with Constantine. Now, when this became where Constantine began to do this, he began to take over, though. Here's, here's one of the problems. He began to try to take over the church. And he, he considered himself um, Pontifus Maximus, you know. And he would go officiate at these different Roman temples to those gods, but then there was now going to be a temple built to the Christian god, and he was going to officiate there as well. Is everybody already beginning to see the problem? So... True biblical Christians began to realize this seemed like something that was good, but this is very worldly, um, it's pagan, and they began to have a problem with it. And so Constantine ignored any type of true biblical Christianity and true biblical Christian leaders, and he began to appoint his cronies to oversee the church. And as a matter of fact, they began to kind of persecute any Christians that were against what they were doing. And so 
Roman Catholicism from its inception was never something that was true biblical Christianity at all. There was, it was not at all. I'm talking about from day one, zero biblical Christianity involved in this, okay? This was just a secular government sanctioning it and then taking over it. So picture for a moment, if you want to kind of get an idea, picture if Joe Biden decided that we're really going to honor Christianity and he began to be our leader. Everybody just gasped right there, those that did. Okay, and secular America now, they began to, the government began to appoint people over us to take over the church and begin to tell us what to believe and not to believe. And we had to go to their facilities they built and worship their way. Now everybody's starting to get an idea of what we're dealing with. Okay. So that's basically what was going on. And so Satan decided to totally, completely change his tactic. And unfortunately, it was extremely successful. Those that know, um, have studied the Word of God and they, they've studied the book of Revelation know that Revelation chapter 2 and 3 deals with the church age. And it seems to indicate, I personally believe this, and most Bible scholars do, that the seven churches there is like a prophetic timeline. The first church is Ephesus, and it speaks of uh, the time of the apostolic church, uh, the 12 apostles, uh, and, and the church that was born in Ephesus was a church born in the fires of revival. I mean, read Acts chapter 19. That's their history. When Paul went there and preached for two years, saw great revival. And so this was like true biblical Christianity here. But then you see, as you go, eventually the church of Thyatira speaks of Roman Catholicism emerging. It speaks of the Jezebel spirit. And then the last day church is the one we're living in today, which is the Laodicean church. Okay. So anyway, I don't want to belabor this too much because it's not really what all this is about. But I want you to understand that we love Catholic people. We go out witnessing. We usually run into Catholic people. And I hope that, that they come here wanting to find Jesus. I mean, we love them. It's nothing about people here. I'm dealing with simply a cult that does not believe the gospel, even to this day, which I'm going to get into here in a moment. So here's what when, Roman, uh, when Constantine came to power and Roman Catholicism kind of started emerging, uh, there was a definite removal of any type of fivefold ministry of God, and it was replaced with Roman clergy. Roman Catholicism began to cut off, and this is not exhaustive at all. There, there's many other problems, but I'm just giving a few things briefly here. Roman Catholicism began to cut off any type of the life, the flow, and the power of the Holy Spirit and the working of his gifting. Salvation by a new birth was replaced. Now, everybody take a moment to really think about this one, okay? How are we going to get into heaven? Jesus said you cannot get to heaven without being born again, okay? Salvation by a new birth was now replaced, done away with now, replaced with just converting 
to this Roman Catholic worship, if you will, of it was a hybrid of Christianity, a form of godliness, but it denied the power of God in it. It denied the power of, of salvation through a new birth. Another problem was it took God out of the home, and it became about cathedrals and ritual. So just like you would go to a, a Roman pagan temple, and that pagan temple had different types of form and structure the way that the incense would be burned, the way that this would be chanted, and the way this was done, it was very systematic. It was just religious ritual to that pagan deity. In the same exact way, it was moved over here, and there would be a cathedral. There was a form and ritual unto the God of Christianity, but this guy was just going from pagan temple to pagan temple now to the Christian temple. Does this make sense? So it took it. Now, here's, here's something important. It took it out of the home. See, there was a time when Christianity met in homes, and it was about the family. That was done away with. It was kind of forced out of the home to this temple, and you had to worship the way they said. There was no move of the Holy Spirit. There was no praying in the Spirit. There, there was no life and flow or, or spontaneity in the Spirit. Now, it was just dead form and ritual. It also cut off the Hebrew roots and did away with sound doctrine. So Christianity for 300 years would have, would have been extremely Jewish in its flavor. If people saw it, there would be so much uh, Jewishness about it. Well, uh, Roman Catholicism, Constantine and the, the Romans, they were anti-Semitic. They didn't like that. So they began to deliberately cut away any type of Hebrew out of it completely and move it over now to look like the Roman type of worship they did in their other temples. Now it's this way. And what the Lord warned in, in the seven churches revelation beginning in Ephesus, he said, if you're not careful, guys, you're going to lose your lampstand. And that spoke of the light of truth. It spoke of the light of God's word in the sevenfold spirit of, of God, the the, the burning fire of Pentecost, the move of the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Holy Spirit. Basically, biblical, book of Acts, New Testament Christianity, the way it's supposed to be, the Lord said, that lampstand, if you're not careful, you'll lose it. And how many knows when the lampstand of God like that is removed, thick darkness comes in. And that's what even secular history refers to that time frame when true biblical Christianity was snuffed out, that the lampstand was lost, and now what happens? Thick darkness comes in the dark ages. Now, let me kind of shift gears here and talk about something completely different. I'll bring it together here in a moment under, as we look at the reformers. So, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but have you ever thought about how completely, utterly, we really are dependent on the Holy Spirit? Really think about this tonight. I want you to maybe see something you've never seen before. See, Jesus walked the earth as the Son of God, but he really lived as the Son of Man. He did not live like uh, the Godhead. He lived this way. He lived as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And so Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. That's why he said, whatever I see the Father doing, I do what I hear him 
say I speak, but that was by the Holy Spirit that he was doing that. Even when he cast out demons and the Pharisees gave him a hard time, he said, no, no, I do this by the Spirit of God. Well, Jesus operated under the anointing, but Jesus could only be in one place at one time. And he told his disciples one time, he said, guys, it's actually better for you that I go away because I'll send the comforter. And I would imagine every one of them gasped when he said, it's better that you go away. That makes no sense. But now we understand because when the Holy Spirit has come, see, Jesus being a physical man walking the earth could only be at one place. The Holy Spirit, he is the one that, that goes inside of us and gives us a new birth. He's the one that can move over many people. So I'm going to give you some things tonight. I, unfortunately, in the pattern of what I just described, how Satan attacked the church by moving it from Holy Spirit, Book of Acts Church, into religious ritual, in the same way constantly over these last couple hundred years, even, even though God's been pouring out His Spirit in a mighty way since the 1700s, we still have, been, have a history of going back to form and ritual, back to dead Christianity, man-controlled Christianity, and then God has to raise up somebody else and pour out his spirit again. And, and So anyway, we, true biblical Christianity, there is an utter dependence on the activity of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, he said, now go wait in Jerusalem till you be clothed with power. The church age did not actually begin until the Holy Spirit fell upon his people. Once the Holy Spirit fell in the book of Acts, that was the birth of the church, if you will. And as, as the church began to grow, it was growing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Doing, I'm going to show you some things, and you'll, I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. Did you know that there is no possible way that you and I can find salvation except the Holy Spirit draw us? Did you know that? You didn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm just going to be born again today. That didn't happen. It required the Holy Spirit convicting you and drawing you. You cannot be saved without his activity. And yet, so many places are comfortable having nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And they wonder why so many people leave the church. They've never truly been convicted by the Holy Spirit, born of God. Many leave, not that they're leaving the Lord Jesus per se, they're just leaving dead forms and ritual. Number two, it requires the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and open us up to salvation. So the Holy Spirit is the one. That's why in times of great revival, you know, we can have all the different activities we do and, and God honors it that we can see a few people here and there get saved. But you and I both know that in times of great revival and the Holy Spirit is really moving in power, that people, even those that you would never thought would accept Jesus, get convicted of sin and drawn by the Lord. I've seen it the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
I'll give you a quick story just in my life. There's been so many, but this one has always stood out to me. Because I was sharing this here recently at, at a friend of mine's church. But there was, there was a time that this guy came. I had an air conditioning issue, and this guy came out. His name was Vernon. He was out there working on it, and I began to try to witness to him, but the guy had zero interest. As a matter of fact, he told me that he worked with somebody that's always talking to him about the Lord and sharing Scripture, and he's, he's heard it all. He's just not interested. Kind of shut me down. So I want you to think about this for a moment. I was giving it my best. The things I was, I was saying to him was not foolish. I mean, I was, I was giving him the gospel. I was, I, if I could say it this way, doing a good job of witnessing to him. We were getting along, but this guy was zero interested in the gospel. And I was about to just move on from the conversation until this. I felt the anointing, but I noticed that he began, I looked at him, he, he was shaking trembling. And I noticed his face started kind of getting flush. And I saw tears forming in his eyes. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, my Lord, the Holy Spirit's moving on burn. And he, he looks at me and he's kind of trembling now. And he looks at me and says, what's happening to me? And I said, well, the Holy Spirit is moving upon you, Vern. I said, man, the, the Lord's people have been witnessing you. People are talking to you. And, and now God's trying to, to save you. The Holy Spirit's moving on your life. And Vern looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, what do I need to do? And I was able to pray with him, and he sincerely accepted the Lord. It was not possible until the Holy Spirit moved on Vern. And, and I remember um, Dr. Cho is a mighty man of prayer, tremendous anointing on his life, always told this story. He said that he would go out witnessing and people, people wanted to beat him up. And uh, he was frustrated because he was going out there giving it his best. I mean, he's giving them the gospel. And, and people just wanted to beat him up. And then he would see his mother-in-law go out there and witness and people would cry. So in frustration, why, he, why are you doing the same thing I'm doing and they want to beat me up, but they, want, they cry when he... And she said, because you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so he said, okay. So he goes out in the woods. And he tells the story. He said, I went out there and found a tree, and I grabbed the tree, hugged the tree. And I said, Lord, I'm not leaving this tree until you baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Long and short of it, he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. He came back full of the Spirit. And he said, as he went out witnessing now, he said he noticed a definite change that people began to respond differently to the gospel, and he saw them also begin to weep. That is the power of God. And let me tell you, just like on the, uh, the day of Pentecost, book of Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached, it says that they were cut to the heart. 3,000, they were pierced in their heart, and they said, what must we do? So it takes the Holy Spirit to penetrate like that. When the Holy Spirit comes, He glorifies Jesus Christ. And if we'll preach the true gospel, the Holy Spirit, He will mightily anoint that. The Holy Spirit enables us. Please understand how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. He's the one that actually enables us to pray and gives us a hunger for God's presence. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit helping us pray, 
We, it would be dead. It would be dry. We wouldn't want to pray. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps us be able to have the prayer life that we need. He's the one that gives us a hunger for God. The Holy Spirit is also the one that helps us to understand the Bible. And I'm going to say this nicely, but have you ever noticed that there's some people out there that can, they're totally secular people, and they may have a decent IQ level, they're educated, they know all about advanced things in physics and trigonometry, but when it comes to the Bible, have you ever noticed they think they know it, and they can quote some things, but in actual fact, they seem to be almost as dumb as a box of rocks. And you're thinking, how is it that you understand advanced physics and you don't even understand the simplicity of the gospel? You know why? Because it takes the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. And they don't have him. The Holy Spirit, he's the one that leads us into all truth. Otherwise, there is this blinding that's there. The Holy Spirit, he's the one that changes our desires and our appetites. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, we used to have all these ungodly desires, all these lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now the Holy Spirit has come into us, and now we begin to have new desires. All of a sudden, we find that we want to crumble up the, the cart of cigarettes and throw them in the trash. We want to flush the drugs down the toilet. We want to dump the alcohol down the sink. We don't want to go any longer to the bars and clubs on the weekend. Rather, we look forward to going to God's house to worship. Now, we, we don't want the same friends we used to have doing the same stuff we used to do. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come into us, and now we have new desires. That is impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Also, as a Christian, Acts 1.8 Jesus said that you'll be clothed with power. Uh, Matthew 3.11 says that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. So just as you're immersed in water completely and brought up, in the same way, Jesus is the one that baptizes us in the Holy Ghost and fire. And as we're immersed in the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a prayer language of tongues that comes. There's a clothing of power that comes. And the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8, when he comes upon us, gives us the ability to be the effective witness that we need to be. The Holy Spirit is the one that uses us in our various giftings and calling. We may have different types of gifting that God created us with, maybe music abilities or etc. just different things. The Holy Spirit is the one that can use us in those. Also, spiritual giftings. If you're called to the ministry, whether it's uh, apostolic or pastoring or teaching, or the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit... We cannot really effectively operate in those things without the anointing and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. We don't even know how to really pray, but in our weakness, the Holy Spirit will intercede through us, even with groans too deep for words. We're utterly dependent on Him in that. And also... It says that the sons of God will be led by the Spirit. And if you understand biblical uh, symbolism, you understand that you're moving out of being an infant on milk and you're moving now into some kind of maturity sonship where you learn how to be led by the Holy Spirit. Your inner man is developed, your inner senses are trained, 
and you've learned to hear from the Holy Spirit and move with him, but he's the one that leads us. The Bible even says about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we're sons and daughters of God. So it requires him to bear witness. It's not my job to tell somebody they're saved. It's my job to point them to Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit will come in and there'll be a new birth and the Holy Spirit will bear witness in them that they're a son or daughter of God. So in other words, there's no real change or advancement of any kind without the Holy Spirit's activity. And I've been saved long enough to see all kinds of events and activities that we do, all kinds of programs, all kinds of big events. We have big-name people come in. They'll blow into town, this big thing, and then all that goes back out of town, and about two or three weeks later, everything's the same as it was before, as though it never happened. Maybe one or two people got saved, and that's awesome, and I don't belittle that because it was worth it all just to see one person get saved, okay? But I'm just saying when the Holy Spirit is poured out, then many will accept him. And see, that's the difference. When man's trying to do it, it's like you're casting your fishing pole and you get one or two here and there. But in times of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's like when Jesus said, cast the net on the other side, a supernatural harvest comes in by the power of the Spirit of God. So let me give you about the reformers. In 1517, we, everybody kind of knows this for the most part. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the Catholic uh, Church on the front door there in Wittenberg. He had 95 complaints about Roman Catholicism. How many of you have heard of St. Augustine? So Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He studied, you know, St. Augustine's teachings. And he did everything he could to be the best Catholic he could be. And let me tell you, Roman Catholicism, I, I love people. It's nothing about that. But the institution itself teaches people that the way you get to heaven is by being a good little Catholic. They believe that there's no salvation outside of Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. So you're saved through the Roman Catholic Church by doing what the priests tell you by being a good little Catholic. That's your salvation. So it's a salvation by works. And Ephesians says that we are not saved by works so that any man could boast. Okay? There is no salvation outside of being born again and accepting what Jesus did on the cross. You cannot earn your salvation. And so that it's flawed in, in the most fundamental way. And so Martin Luther he, what really set him off, he had some concerns anyway, but was whenever it was the indulgences to raise money for the Roman Catholic Church to begin to build these big edifices, they went through and told people that, look, what you can do is, is you give us money and you can buy indulgences. So that means for, you know, for X amount of money, if you give it to us, then you can go out and commit adultery or you can do this, that, and the other, and you're already forgiven by giving us this money. It's indulgences. They could pay the church to go out and sin. And then conveniently also, there began to be this teaching about purgatory. So people also were taught that you basically could pray and give 
and get your loved ones out of purgatory. It was a way of fundraising. And so Martin Luther, that set him off. <laughs> and man, he, he got very upset about that one. And that right there is, let, let me just give you a little bit more. So some of the heroes of the faith before Martin Luther, which this happened when he nailed uh, the thesis on the door in Wittenberg was 1517. Before that, they were great heroes of the faith. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, to this day, when you deal with the Roman Catholic Church, people think, well, that's Christianity. How many have, have run into that? And they blame Christians for what Catholics have done historically. Yet what they fail to understand is that it's not true Christianity and that Roman Catholicism did not just hunt down the Muslims and the Jews and others that disagreed with them, but they very much hunted down any type of a true Christian, and they would capture them, and they would burn them alive at the stake. Case in point, John Huss, who was burned alive because he believed in a personal salvation in Christ. He was labeled a heretic and burned alive by the Roman Catholic Church. There was also a man before Martin Luther named Wycliffe. How many of you guys have heard of him? His followers were called the Lollards, and the Roman Catholic Church hated him, wanted to kill him, but never could get to him. And Wycliffe faithfully preached. His followers would faithfully preach the gospel. And um, the Catholic Church so hated Wycliffe, they were never able to actually assassinate him the way they wanted to, but later on, after he was dead and gone, they went to his grave, dug up his bones, and pronounced a curse on him. That's how much they hated him. And how weird is that? So there were already people that, that were faithful to believe the true gospel and live it and share it with others, but they paid for it with their life as Roman Catholicism would label them a heretic, hunt them down, and kill them or imprison them. But God began to move in the 1500s, and there were three reformers I want to talk about. One of them, Holdrich Zwingli, he was from Switzerland, and Zwingli had a very weak voice. He had short sight, and he lacked the ability of a popular order. In other words, he wasn't a good preacher at all. Yet, how many knows that in our weakness, Christ becomes strong? Even though he was... He was Somebody had a weak voice, short sight, and was not the greatest preacher. His preaching, though, was so anointed, it set Switzerland aflame. One here said of Zwingli, it said that he felt that while he was preaching, he said, the only way I can describe it, it was like somebody had grabbed me by the hair and lifted me up in space and suspended me there. And I've kind of felt here sometimes when we've been in prayer, deep worship, I have felt just kind of like you're in another world or something. So I kind of relate to what this guy is saying. When you're really in the glory, you just feel kind of like you're out of it, and that's what he was referring to here. But the Vatican put contracts out on Zwingli, and because of that, they did y'all catch that? The Vatican put contracts out on his life, Okay. He was eventually killed, cut into four pieces, and tossed in the fire. Like all the reformers, Zwingli was part, he was far from perfect. But what we can learn from his life is this. Anointed preaching can radically change a nation. When, God, when it's time for God to move, 
anointed preaching can just shake a nation. Zwingli was inadequate in his ability. He was inaccurate in his doctrine. He was hindered some by legalism. He had a past of some shaky character, but yet he affected the world. If God can use Zwingli, he can use us. Amen? Another man which is a lot more famous is Martin Luther, who I've already mentioned. Martin Luther radically impacted the whole world. But you got to understand, as I say these things about the imperfections, just keep in mind that we take a lot of things for granted. I mean, all that these men knew was Roman Catholicism. All they knew was the way things were at that time. And so them breaking out of that, there's still a lot of that in their life, and you can see that. So Martin Luther, he radically impacted the world, but you got to understand, he was very impetuous. He was very rough. And he was very crude. He was shockingly harsh. And he became very anti-Semitic. Now, I believe at first from reading some things about his life that he really reached out to the Jewish community. And when they rejected the gospel, he really turned on them. He became an anti-Semite. Concerning the peasant revolts, he encouraged violence and even beheading. I mean, we're not dealing with a real sanctified individual here. He encouraged Jews to be severely persecuted. As a matter of fact, some of his anti-Semitic writings may have laid some groundwork that, you know, through the Lutheran church and into Eastern Europe that had a hand in what happened through the Nazis, unfortunately. Yet, with all of Martin Luther's flaws and imperfections that we all have many flaws, we can learn much from him in this. You've got to understand, by him preaching the way he did, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and standing steadfast in that. You have to understand, he knew the Catholic Church was hunting him down to kill him. He knew that. He hid away and he spent the time to, to handwrite from this old Latin Vulgate version of the Bible and put it in the modern-day vernacular of that day so that the modern-day person could read the Bible for themselves. And, and he had, even though he was a very imperfect person, as we all are, yet he had great courage, he had great boldness, and he had the tenacity of like a bulldog. He laid hold of this truth, and he fought it to the end. He taught us things that now, today, in 2022, we all take for granted, but it was radical and revolutionary in his time. He taught us this, that man is justified by faith in the gospel, faith in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. It is not by works. It is by faith in him alone. We take that for granted, but he risked his life for that. He also taught us that each believer has access to God directly without requiring a human priest, without requiring the Catholic Church, that you and I have access to God ourselves, a personal relationship. That was unheard of. 
He taught us that the Bible is the supreme and sole source of truth. See, at that time, Roman Catholicism, the leadership believed that the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church superseded the scriptures. Can you believe that? But they did believe that. And that's why some of the incredibly just insane doctrines that they brought in. Think about it for a moment. And I'm not saying this to be disrespectful. I'm just saying this is how in the world can you know even the ABCs of the Bible, even people that are not Christian, that don't know God's word, for the most part have an idea that there's a Ten Commandments. How in the world can this institution that was supposed to be Christian condone the bowing down and worshiping of idols when it's like number one and number two of the Ten Commandments to not do that very thing. But it was because the clergy felt that they were superior to the Scriptures and that they could override it. And if they said it was okay, then everybody said it was okay. And they, they required at that time that the only way you were going to have knowledge of Scriptures was if you went to a Roman Catholic church and the priest told you what he was supposed to tell you, you were not allowed to have the Scriptures in your possession and read it for yourself. So what Martin Luther was doing here was incredibly revolutionary. He was telling people, you don't need Roman Catholicism to go to heaven. You can accept the Lord for yourself. You can have a personal relationship with him and you can read the Bible for yourself and know what it says. And and then he also taught us that the Bible is the sole source of truth. It is the final authority and it settles every argument. Revolutionary. And I'll tell you something else. It was just providence. It had to be God. But at the same time that this was going on was when the Gutenberg Press was created. So now Martin Luther pins the Bible in the modern vernacular, and now it hits the Gutenberg Press and begins to get out there, and people can read the Bible for themselves for the first time. In other words, it didn't have to be handwritten, which took forever. Now they could just print it and get it out there. And some of the teaching of of these reformers also was printed as pamphlets and given out. The third reformer, John Calvin. He understood the sovereignty of God. John Calvin understood our total dependence on God. But his influence, John Calvin's influence, rested firmly in like an Old Testament mold of reform through legal, like legalism and moral means. There was no powerful moving of the Holy Spirit through his life or ministry at all. He had extreme views of God's sovereignty in election and eternal security that unfortunately still plague much of Christianity today. He was a quiet scholar, but in debates, he was a horrible opponent. He was ruthless. He resorted to vicious name-calling. There was a famous doctor of that time that even though his doctrine, the doctor's doctrine was imperfect, he was burned at the stake with green wood under Calvin's leadership because he opposed the teachings of Calvin. So Calvin was a vicious leader like the other reformers, 
But here's something I'm only going to say in passing because I know that it's an ancient argument with Arminianism and Calvinism, which many here in the sound of my voice may or may not even know what I'm talking about. But Arminianism in an extreme form believes that you're going along as a Christian and if you sin, then basically you have to get saved all over again. Okay, so that's obviously, that can be a very extreme form, all right? But Calvinism has some extremes as well. And that's where you get, for example, extreme Calvinism would be this. This is kind of an example. You have 10 people born, five of them are predestined to heaven, five are predestined to hell. That's just the way it's going to happen. God's sovereign, period. And so there's also an idea of um, eternal security in an extreme way where that's where you get a lot of this stuff that you can say a little prayer and no matter how you live or what you do, you're still going to go to heaven when you die. That type of mentality goes back to extreme Calvinism. Yet the Bible indicates that there would be some that would abandon the faith. The book of Revelation says there's, there's some that their names would be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Hello? So there's this middle road. Everybody just hear what I'm saying because I could go on this for a long time and I'm deliberately not doing that. There is an extreme Arminian view and there is an extreme Calvinistic view. But let me tell you the true, true view that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and we live out our salvation uh, by uh, fear and trembling in a holy God. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling for yourself. Does that make sense? And if everybody has a reverential fear of God, they love God, and they're working out their salvation with fear and trembling, then they obviously have nothing to worry about. But Calvinism is something still to this day that has some good points. God is sovereign, but it also has a lot of flaws. Um, with all of Calvin's flaws, we can learn from Calvin the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, and the supreme authority of Christ in the justification by faith. Now, let me move on from that. Truly submitting to authority. Now, it's very important that we understand something. Everybody look this way because I don't want to lose you as we get into some of this historic stuff. We have to be submitted to authority, but we can never be submitted to witchcraft control. There's a difference. Roman Catholicism was a very oppressive, controlling type of cult, a religion. Of, it was a cult for sure because it didn't believe the gospel. But a, a religion, the strongman, if anybody was to say, well, what's the strongman over Roman Catholicism? Well, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, I believe Revelation 17, it talks about the horror of Babylon. Roman Catholicism is replete with idolatry. There's all this worship and praying to Mary. What they don't understand, though, behind those idols, behind the relics, behind all the weird rituals that are done, and behind this supposed worship of Mary and veneration of saints in the worship of the Pope as being Christ in the flesh. Hello, anybody else have a problem with that right there? The worship of the Eucharist as though 
It was actually the body, the, I'm, I'm talking literal here, literal body and blood of Jesus, and the wafer is worshipped, okay? Behind all of that strange, idolatrous worship is a principality, and I believe that principality is none other than the Jezebel spirit, the queen of heaven. In Acts chapter 3, verse 21, though, as the Lord broke away from Roman Catholicism, he didn't try to fix it because it was never his to begin with. Hello? It was never true biblical Christianity. God didn't step in and say, I'm going to fix this. No. He said, I'm simply going to break out off of it my true people. And he began a reformation. And the Bible says this in Acts 3, 21, when it talked of Jesus going to heaven, it says, whom heaven must receive Jesus until the period of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouths of holy prophets in ancient times. God, in his incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is also in a process of restoration that's still going on in our day. Satan came in, and he, he came in this way as a religious form, of Christianity that was no Christianity at all. It had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof, denied the true gospel. Satan came in that way, and since God broke off in the 1500s from that, he has been in a process. Every time the Holy Spirit has been poured out, there has been also restoration of truths, more and more biblical book of Acts Christianity. And I'll just in passing give you a couple examples Look at Azusa Street. As the Holy Spirit poured out, what was being restored back? The baptism and the Holy Ghost in tongues again. In the 40s and 50s, it's the only other example I'll give you, but what was being restored back again? The ministry of faith and healing, the ministry of the deliverance, and the ministry of apostolic and prophetic, things like that were being restored. And every time God poured out his spirit, it was not just an outpouring, but there would be a harvest of souls but there would also be a restoration of things that the devil has stolen. We cannot be content with anything less. God wants us living out Book of Acts biblical Christianity. You know why a lot of times people don't see a lot of things they could see? Because they don't believe it anymore. That's it. The reason why people are not seeing a lot of times what they could see is because they don't believe. They don't expect it, whatever it is. And a lot of times you get people out of that religious systems that they're in out there, and you get them around the power of God, and all of a sudden they begin to open up, and they're so hungry because now for once they're around a group of people that actually believe in whatever it is they need. They believe that God wants to heal them. He wants to set them free. He, you know, he wants to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. They, 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 they're around a group of people that believe in the gifts. So God's in a process. And I believe it's all wrapping up. We're at the very end here. But the book of Acts, Christianity with glory and power, the fivefold ministry, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I believe also in the last 20 years or so, we've been seeing the restoration of also the Hebrew roots of the faith. And from the Hebrew roots, some of the things that we've learned is that the importance of prayer, fasting, giving, consecrating your life, the importance of holiness, 
understanding water immersion biblically, understanding the communion table the way it should be, understanding the anointing with oil. These things, even though it was always there, it wasn't really understood until it's understood from the right perspective. Understanding our homes are supposed to be places where God moves. Understanding the power of speaking blessings. Understanding the feast from a New Testament perspective. Understanding giving God a day, a Sabbath day. Understanding the tithes and various offerings. All of this goes back to the Hebrew roots of the faith. But again, this is how I want to close this out. We, sub- we have to submit to true biblical authority. It's important. We're living in a time when rebellion is, is rampant. We have to be under authority. We have to submit to true biblical authority. But you don't submit to witchcraft control. It's different. There's a different spirit there. And if you submit to witchcraft control, it's an oppressive thing. It's domineering. And, and it actually is like a curse. But when you submit to true biblical authority, there's a blessing in it. Okay? Now... This is how I want to close this out. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and ungodly control. Matthew 13, 51, Jesus shares this, and I think a lot of times people just read over it. It may seem a little cryptic, but let me try to break this down because it's very important. He said this, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And then Jesus said to them, therefore, every, look at this, every scribe. Now, who were the scribes of Jesus' day? These were those that knew the, the word of God very well. They were educated, and they were the ones that would write, they, they were qualified to write out the word of God. In other words, even to this day, there, there are people that are specifically trained in rabbinical circles. For they, they have the right training to be able to handwrite the Torah verbatim. It has to be perfect. I mean, where things are written bigger and smaller in a certain, everything has to be perfect. And they're specifically trained. Scribes were trained that way, very educated. They knew the Bible, and they they would write it out. And Jesus said this, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? A follower of Jesus Christ. He says, every scribe that has become a follower of him is like the head of a household, look at this, who brings forth out of his treasure both things that are new and old. I can't tell you how important that really is. There is a depth. When we understand, I remember Dick Rubin used to teach, and he said so many places they just ignored the Old Testament. And one of the things he would tell people was to open their Bibles, and there was this page there that separated the Old old and New Testament. And he would tell them, if you have the chutzpah, He said, I want you to tear that page out of your Bible, and you're going to believe that that whole 66 books of the Bible is, all of it is God's Word and relevant for today. Of course, you'd hear him, out comes the paper, you know. And he taught the Old Testament, understanding it from a fulfilled position in Christ. So he was bringing out of the treasures of his knowledge, both the old and the new, and it brought depth to the Word of God. So there is this ancient path of understanding, understanding the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective. There's an ancient path of of understanding the Hebrew roots of the faith from a fulfilled perspective in Christ. There's also an ancient path in Jeremiah 6, 16, 
Jeremiah lamented over Israel as God prophesied through him. There's this ancient path, and I've told you to walk in it, but you said we would not. But that ancient path would have given you rest for your weary souls. How many knows that there are those that's gone on before us that we can learn so much from? I think about right now today, just to maybe give you an example of what I'm talking about, it seems like much of what our father, spiritual mothers and fathers that's gone on before us have been kind of uh, thrown off, and people are just kind of like the book of Judges, just kind of doing whatever's right in their own eyes. They're, they're throwing off of them the godly convictions of those that's gone before them. They're, they may talk about some past revivals, but they really don't understand the depth of what those revivals really were that it involved uh, uh, really digging down in prayer and fasting to see God show up and the deep repentance of sin and living a holy life. See, that's why certain places that they use the word revival almost like a catchphrase, and I've said this and I sincerely believe it to be the truth. If it was really truly a revival, they would be getting more and more sanctified in Christ not growing more and more worldly. Hello? And bottom line is, I know that that's the truth. And I experienced a true move of God in the 90s in my life, and you know what God did? See, that was one of the things Steve Hill understood. In the early days of the revival, I personally knew Brother Steve. and He loved the Lord. That guy was on fire. And he used to carry this little, back then, it was before the days of the iPad, so I imagine if the iPad existed back then, he would have, had it in his iPad, right? But he had this old folder, and if you opened it up, he would show people that were there, and there was these different clippings of past revivals like Cane Ridge and Azusa, etc. And Steve Hill understood the importance. He spent time with Leonard Ravenhill, and he understood the importance of honoring the past revivals and learning from them. And I believe that, that Steve's hunger in his heart to see the revivals of times past, to see it in our day, but in a much greater way, I believe that that heart to honor both things that are new and old because Steve studied the past revivals, but yet he was so hungry for God that he went out of his way to have Carlos Anacondia. He like tracked him down, went, went to one of the crusades, went in the back, found him, said, please pray for me. And he was so hungry for God, but the Carlos prayed for him. He falls out right in a mud puddle. But Steve was so hungry for God, he would, he would have he didn't care, you know. He, he hunted down. He had a friend of a friend or whatever. He was telling me all this. Hunted down, where's Benny Hinn going to be? Goes to the hotel where Brother Benny... Brother Benny was in actually a really difficult meeting. Comes out. He's in a bad mood. And here Brother Steve is with a buddy of his. Would you pray for us? But listen, Brother Benny was in no mood to pray for anybody. He was just trying to keep himself sane at the moment. But Steve's hunger. Benny said... Touch him, Lord. And both of them just flew back and hit the ground, received an impartation. And Steve was still so hungry for God. He went out of his way, began to hear about how God was moving so mightily through Rodney Howard Brown meetings and then Toronto and then Randy Clark out of Toronto and how he went to England and there were some friends of his he was staying with. He began to read in Time Magazine how Holy Trinity Brompton, there was lines going like a mile long, people there. And he, he thought, my God, what's going on? But he was so hungry for more of God that he went there and, 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 and the vicar there, Sandy Miller, prayed for him. And he said as he went out, 
he just felt like rivers flowing through him. But you see the hunger there. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm hoping that somehow this revelation will come to people listening to this. Brother Steve understood about the old and the new coming together. He understood the wells of revival that were, but he understood to get in on the new move of God of today. Also, Proverbs 22, 28 warns us, don't move the ancient boundaries set up by your fathers. And I don't understand today some of the things. I mean, when I was growing up, it was just understood. John Davis told me he grew up in Pentecost as well. He said, look, it's like anything goes today. He said, when we were growing up, we just knew certain things were wrong, and we just avoided them. But now yet people come to God's house God's house in some places, please understand my heart, I don't mean this critically, but it's become more about entertaining the masses. Where's the type of preaching that causes people to white-knuckle their pews of fear of going to hell? Where's the type of preaching that is so anointed by the Holy Spirit, people are cut to the heart and come down to the altar to repent and get right with God? Where's the type of the move of the Holy Spirit there that people are either going to get saved and repent or they're going to leave? But see, people come in and they're content to be shacked up with their little boyfriend or girlfriend, living in sexual immorality, and they sit week in and week out. I remember when I met with Brother Steve, I believe it was 2003, and I had some time with him, and, and I wanted him to pray with me, and I was asking him all these questions. And so he was answering my questions. And we spent some time together, and um, I remember that he told me this. And so I'm going to pass this on to you. This was back when this would have been kind of a new thing, if you will, anyway, back then. But he said, Scotty said, you know what? A lot of this seeker-friendly stuff you're hearing about, this was new. That term was new. He said, a lot of this seeker-friendly stuff that you're hearing about, he said, it's spiritually, a lot of it's just a joke. I said, really? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, let me give you an example. He said, it's, it's all this stuff about how many people you can get coming, the, the mega moves and all this. He said, well, let me tell you. He said, I have a, I have a friend of mine, a close personal friend. And you see, pastors of a very, very large church, thousands, thousands of people. And Brother Steve said that they were talking, and he asked his friend. He said, if there was something was to happen in your church, let's say that, that one of these terrorists came in, had, had a, a bomb that they were wearing, the bomb, set it off, the entire place blew up. He said, killed everybody. He said, how many of your people do you think would go to heaven? And the guy paused for a moment and said, well, Steve, he said, I think probably about half of them. Did everybody just hear that? He admitted it. He knew, he knew the condition. And Steve said, brother, you better warn them. Are y'all hearing me today? See, this would have been unheard of in the first 300 years of the church. I mean, that right there would have been unheard of, that there would have been the type of preaching that either people are going to come down and give their life to the Lord or they're going to get offended and leave, but they weren't just going to sit there and be pacified and entertained by motivational speeches and, and, and a light show and, and exciting worship and getting involved in programs and social events for your kids. That's not going to save you. You understand? What good is it going to do to have all of that and, and, and at the end of the day that all these people end up perishing in hell for all of eternity? They've never been born again. They've never repented of their sin. 
And what concerns me is, and this is many years later, I mean, Bruce Steve was telling me that in 2003. Well, what I've seen over the last several years is I've been seeing this emergence of some kind of a hybrid, weird form of Christianity out of that that seems to be totally fine with this. There is no requirement whatsoever of being born again. There is no adherence to the Word of God being the sole source of truth. There is no deep repentance of sin. And there seems to be very comfortable with things like abortion, homosexual marriage, etc. people living together in sin, that they're comfortable with it. Let me tell you, and I'm sure that every one of you understand this and much of our listeners understand this, that is not true biblical Christianity here. We're seeing the same thing that, that happened through the days of Constantine where people basically, they, there was no new birth involved. They were still going to the pagan Roman temples and worshiping the Roman gods and just coming over here, and it was just this mixture of worldliness and fake hybrid Christianity. What's the difference? All it is is modernized now. Ancient boundary stones set up by our fathers have been moved in many places. Sound doctrine that many of our fathers of the faith were greatly persecuted to preach and stand for and give their life for, now is being thrown away. But there is something about redigging the wells of revival. And I'm going to tell you, I believe this with all my heart, and I'm, I'm going to close with this. I believe God has one more major outpouring of the Holy Spirit, one more. And it's going to usher in the coming of Jesus Christ. Because we're looking at this right now, and it seems like we're living in the Laodicean age, and, and there's so much deception. But everything that's going on out there was prophesied in the Bible, everything. And so many people don't even see it. Even people call themselves Christians, they don't know. But yet at this time, we're living in so much deception. And God knows it's going to take a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I believe God's got one more outpouring. And this outpouring is going to bring in an impossible harvest that we thought up to ourselves, how in the world can we reach these people? When the Holy Spirit is poured out, an impossible harvest will come in. Number two, it's going to purify the church. Derek Prince used to say the greatest thing about revival and the first thing God will do is electrify the fence. Everybody that's riding the fence and playing games, let me say again, everybody that's riding the fence and playing their little hypocritical games, God's going to electrify the fence. They're either going to get, fall away from the Lord altogether or they're going to truly get right with God, but they're not going to play that anymore. It's going to purify the church. I believe also there's going to be a remnant bride emerge. This remnant bride that's emerging will be a bride without spot or blemish in the fires of revival, wise virgins with extra oil, and ready to meet the Lord in the air. In other words, just like all down through history, it was dependent on the Holy Spirit. You know the Hebridean revival? Uh, I'll just tell this quick story. It's coming to me by the Holy Spirit. But, you know, the Holy Spirit broke out. God began to move in, in Barvis, and it was just a powerful move of God. But there was this one church that Duncan Campbell went to, and it seemed locked up and hindered. And Duncan Campbell was saying how, as I was reading the book, you know, it hadn't been that way, but there was like a satanic resistance there. And there was a man that was really used in the Hebridean revival, 
His name was Donald, and the way God used him was as a prayer warrior. He had great faith. And Duncan Campbell asked him, Donald, would you rise and pray? And Donald began to pray, and he cried out and said, Lord, there's a lot of power. Your power, it's locked up. Lord, let it loose. And all of a sudden, I mean, the people there were just stoic. But when that power broke loose in that place, I mean, it swept through the whole place. And Duncan Campbell said, all of a sudden, people were weeping and wailing. They were coming down to the front, getting on their face, repenting of their sin. What brought the change? It wasn't Duncan Campbell. The power of the Holy Ghost fell. That's what brings all the change. We are utterly dependent. And Satan has been doing it since uh, 300 under Constantine. He's doing it in our day. He's trying so hard to get the church to get their eyes off the move of the Holy Spirit and away from the anointing and just on form and ritual. How many places can you go this weekend and it's just about a form and ritual? There's no move of God. Well, Father, we just thank you so much for the move of your Holy Spirit. I believe we've got one more great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Young men see visions. There's going to be a great outpouring on my maidservants. I'll pour out my spirit. And Lord, we thank you that you've been doing it in a mighty way since the 1700s. Great outpourings. And I believe we've got one more outpouring that's going to get us ready to meet the Lord in the air and break through and bring in a supernatural harvest. And Lord, we just thank you tonight for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just pray tonight that you would do it, move like no other time in history. Let this be the greatest move of God, the type of move of God, Lord, that causes impossible situations to turn around, impossible harvest fields to break open. People that others have prayed for, but it seemed like they would never get saved. Lord, let there be the type of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that just melts the hardest hearts and breaks down the... the the hardest sinners, that they're going to be on their face and repenting of their sin. Lord, we just thank you for it. Let it come. Do it in our day. We're hungry to see it again. Let Book of Acts Christianity be restored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.